Hello and welcome to Life of the School, episode 27. Hello, my name is Aaron Matthew, and I'm a biology teacher from Acton Boxborough Regional High School. Each episode of Life to School, I like to sit down with a fellow life science teacher and ask them, how did they get in the classroom? What are they currently working on? And what are their hopes for the future? In this episode, I sit down with Sherry Anay. Sherry teaches honors biotechnology at Brebeuf Jesuit Preparatory School in Indianapolis. She was the recipient of the 2001 Milken National Education Award. 2005 Outstanding Biology Teacher Award for Indiana, and 2009 Butler University Distinguished Alumni Award. Within the state of Indiana, Sherry is a past president of both the Hoosier Association of Science Teachers, Inc., and the Indiana Association of Biology Teachers. As a highly active uh, teaching professional, she attended the 2011 and 2012 BioBuilder Workshops at MIT and co-hosted a 2012 BioBuilder Workshop at Purdue University. Sherry is a past member of the BioBuilder Foundation Advisory Board. She is also a teacher ambassador for HHMI Biointeractive. Sherry earned her BS in Biological Sciences and Biology Chemistry Secondary Education from Purdue University and an MS in Effective Teaching from Butler University. Welcome, Sherry. Thank you, Karen. So, yeah, this is great. Um, you were on my list early to get on um, <laughs> in terms of when I sat down and wrote down all my list of various teachers from around the country I know and people who would be interesting to interview. And then just uh, you know, a couple short months ago, I'm walking through the exhibit hall at NSTA and look up and you're standing there working for Biointeractive and I didn't expect that. <laughs> yeah, it was a lot of fun to run into you. Yeah, and we know each other from those early BioBuilder workshops, those ones back in 2011, which seems like it doesn't seem like it was that long ago. But you were one of those people um, when I first went to those BioBuilder workshops that were learning from Natalie. Yes. So, uh, yeah, um, we met a lot of interesting people at those workshops, and it's fun to run into them at conferences. Yeah, I actually went and uh, met with uh, um, Arinda, a fellow uh, a fellow oh, BioBuilder uh-huh. alum, right after we had talked, I went and we actually had lunch um, just after that. So, yeah, it's a, it's a nice family that we built uh, out of those workshops. Absolutely, yes. Lynn Williams from Colorado and I ended up giving a presentation at NABT um, a couple of years ago as a result of that workshop. Yeah. And Natalie, of course, um, Natalie Colbell, as we know, is phenomenal in terms of trying to keep us connected and, and active. Yeah, she um, and I've been doing the BioBuilder Club with my students, so we've kept that connection. And um, she had a bunch of us working on some stuff this year as well. Um, yeah, she does a great job keeping us connected. Uh, so yeah, I'm I'm glad that you could join me here. It's uh, it's early summer for me, although it doesn't sound like you're very um, relaxed and not busy. Um, <laughs> we we may have to get uh, into that. Yeah. <laughs> I've got some um, work travel coming up. Yes, indeed. Yeah, it is busy. All right. So uh, let me start with my first question I like to ask everybody. Um, how did you become a teacher? What led you into the classroom? So science teaching actually happened to me by accident. Um, I was attending Purdue as an undergrad. And um, during the summer after my sophomore year, I decided I wanted to be a camp counselor. And so I went to Maine and I um, really enjoyed the experience. And it um, um, the camp was um, teenagers, you know, so 
um, high school kids essentially were at the camp. And I, um, while there, I thought, oh, I really enjoy working with teens. So when I came back to Purdue in the fall, um, I did not want to give up. So I was, and I still did earn my degree in biology, um, but I wanted to add teaching. I thought, well, you know, in case I ever want to teach or use education in some way, um, I would um, go ahead and um, double up in that. Um, but my focus really was wanting to do research, going to the Peace Corps and, and doing research. And so scientific research. And um, so I, you know, did everything I was supposed to do. I graduated um, with my biology degree and then it was um, doubling up in my education courses. And then after that, it required an extra semester to teaching. And so um, I thought, well, if I don't do it now, I, you know, I'll probably never do it. <laughs> so I went ahead and finished. And I, that meant then um, that extra semester was I ended in December and as I was um, going through the school's education, you know, I was just filling out all the paperwork they told me to fill out. And um, I went back home to Michigan um, with the goal being to enter that again, as I said, the Peace Corps um, or graduate school. And um, the principal from a high school in Indianapolis um, called and talked to my mother <laughs> and said, we really want to interview your daughter. And... Um, Again, I wasn't planning on teaching. I'd just gone through all the, the motions of the paperwork. Um, and she said, oh, of course, my daughter will be will be down there. He said, what about tomorrow? Okay, so that was a Saturday. <laughs> and um, yeah, so January, you know, the 22-year-old me didn't really understand what was happening and that likely they were <laughs> desperate to find someone. Um, and so I went to the interview. I thought, you know, I don't plan to teach, but this would be great to just, you know, practice my interview skills and so on. Yeah. Uh, and so at the end of that interview, um, the principal said, okay, you know, I'm thinking I'm done. He said, why don't you just go sit out in the principal's office? I'm on the couch. And the um, department chair and I will have a little chat. And so he came out five minutes later and said, we really want to offer you the job. <laughs> to which I uh, thought, oh, no, um, because I really didn't want to do this. And um, how do I go home? And, you know, still then I'm 22 and beautiful, right? And I, how do I go home and tell my parents I've offered a job and I didn't take it? And so they said, well, this is a semester, and this is literally a Saturday night, and I said, he said, we need you to start Monday. <laughs> and I said, I, I, I don't live here. I don't know anyone who lives here. And he said, oh, you can live with the priest. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, well, I um, am pretty conservative um, in terms of, um, you know, socially. Um, I also knew that if I'm going to meet anyone, living with a priest is not going to be the way to do that. And so... Um, I, I said, can I have an extra day? And he said, yes. Yeah. So I'd go back to Michigan, come back down to Indianapolis, um, and started on Tuesday. And um, again, it was just for the semester. And he said, you know, make sure you have your rules. And at this time, so this is in January of 92. Um, the only thing they had to give me was a student version of the book. There was no teacher's edition. Yep. They had missed an adoption. <laughs> there were no, no other supplementary resources. And so, you know, this is before we're using the internet and so on. Um, fortunately, I had a phenomenal department head who um, I call her mentor Deb um, even now. She's no longer in the classroom, but um, phenomenal. It really, um, I credit her. And honestly, too, having so few resources um, when I started forced me to be creative um, and find ways to engage students. And so um, with her support, and, and then actually, again, I credit having so few resources um, as a means of um, 
of helping me in that journey. So what happened is I fell in love with teaching. And so, um, you know, they, they asked me to stay. And for me to have had this dream and this goal of being in research, because um, that's what I thought I wanted, um, and to reconcile that with something I, I knew that I loved, um, you know, it was a bit of a process, but I've never regretted it. So that's how I ended up in teaching. Wow. And I was at that school for five years and then um, moved to Burbuff 20 years ago. I just celebrated my 20th year there and overall 25 years of teaching. So, wow. And in honor of that, I bought a cuff that says, do what you love, um, <laughs> that I wear almost every day. And um, I still, 25, 25 years later, am doing what I love. That's awesome. It, it makes me think of, I mean, as you're, as you're telling this story, I get all of these flashbacks to being that 22 year old kid sitting. Cause I got my first hiring job at the very end of August. Um, I, I like to tell the story that I, I sat down in this job and I didn't same thing, 22 years old. I didn't realize that like if they were interviewing me, they had no options, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, and they were looking for a warm body, you know, at this point, looking back in my career, you know, it's like, it's pretty obvious. It's, it's August 27th. And I'm sitting in this room with a principal and a department head and one of their science teacher. They're just looking for somebody with a pulse who's going to get through at this point. Um, and uh, even though I didn't have my, my teaching credentials, but at the time I was like, oh, well, they're never going to hire me. I don't have my teaching credentials. And uh, I remember asking the question. It was like they, they you know, we went back for like 15, 20 minutes. And then when they had the, this opportunity and I was like, you know, I'm about to start working on my master's degree, but I don't have my teaching credentials. Does that in any way, you know, put me behind other candidates in this interview process? And the guy who ended up becoming my department head sort of looked around and he said in a very like knowing way. There is that at this point, all of the candidates are considered equal, regardless of their credentials. And I was like, <laughs> "Oh yeah, you're just looking for a warm body at this point." <laughs> um, and yeah, I was naive too. It's a Saturday night, and they're interviewing me. Obviously, um, <laughs> they needed someone, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, it is one of those, you know, like now knowing what I know, I know it'd be like I would have been a lot more comfortable, you know, walking in there the first time. But uh, yeah, it mm-hmm. was. It's amazing because we, I think about all of the things that we talk about, how to make, um, you know, the, the start of your career, like, you know, really successful and what is the best way to prepare somebody and all that. And the number of teachers I talked to were like, yeah, I had no plan. I wasn't really prepared. I didn't have any background. And then I just got thrown in. And here it is, you know, for me, I'm, you know, I'm starting year 22 as well. This upcoming year is going to be year 22 for me. And you're, you know, 25 years in getting ready to start 26. And, you know, the people I know who are so passionate about it, yes, many of them went through good credentials, but just as many sort of stumbled in a little bit, like I kind of like teenagers and I love science and let's see what happens. Um, Leads to a very uh, fulfilling career. Uh, so one of the one of the interesting things that that popped for me, um, I always jokingly talk about the fact that I, I internet stalk uh, my my future guests, and uh, I came across an article which was a, a highlight of you as a teacher um, posted on your school website. And one of the things that they talked about in this is uh, your initiative of having a, a science alumni Skype seminar series that you mm-hmm. run with your students. So I'm a little bit curious. Um, for me, I think career outreach is so important. Uh, tell me about this program and, and how do, what does this do for your students, this uh, alumni Skype uh, seminar series that you do? Yeah, so um, I teach, I currently and have been for a while teaching um, juniors and seniors, um, biotech, 
And so um, it became important to me to connect um, former students um, of the school of um, so alumni of Brabus. Um, and in many cases, when I say former students, since I'd had in class, but not always. Um, and show that and it was really it was just a 15 minute to 30 minute. Um, you know, they'd, we'd bring them up on Skype and then um, record it, and I could show other classes. Or I tried to have. Um, inter- I have four sections of biotech, so I would each try to try to each at least give them at least one live experience throughout the year. Um, and sometimes um, former students came in and, and spoke as well. And so it was fascinating to, um, the goal really was, uh, you know, how did you get to where you are now? Because a lot, like in teaching, um, a lot of them um, had a, so a sort of convoluted path where they ended up and they didn't expect to be where they were. Um, and then, you know, what, what did Burbuff specifically, what did the education at Burbuff um, do for you now that you're out in the world and living and beyond college? Um, and so it was really just, you know, they would give a quick intro, sort of what you did at the beginning of the podcast. And then really it just became a conversation. So it wasn't a formal um, presentation um, by the alum, but really a conversation. And um, so they would highlight what, what they're doing. And then um, students would engage in discussion. Um, and, you know, after the session, um, my students were always so excited because they had learned that in some cases, you know, um, students ended up in science who didn't, as I said, um, plan to be in science, but maybe thought they didn't have the grades in, in high school. And then, you know, they took a class that was interesting. Um, and then, you know, they had mentors along the way. And so, um, yeah, you know, they didn't all end up, you know, in med school, let's say, uh, pursuing <laughs> medical degrees and, um, that were highly fulfilled. And so it was, it was fun to just show my students a range of careers that exist. That's really neat. I'm I'm curious about um, how the kids um, how the kids are in your classroom. You know, when you were talking about that convoluted path, um, I find mm-hmm. that the students that I have, you know, you mentioned, you know, have honors biotechnology, and I teach a lot of upper level honors biology AP students. They seem to have a very or many of them, I should say, have a very clear path in their mind of well, I'm going to go do this, and then I'm going to go do this, and I'm going to do this, and like there's a degree of um, certainty to their their path before you know before them i'm curious how how the students that have that degree of certainty or if your students have that degree of certainty um mm-hmm. how they react to hearing these paths uh from from your alumni well i think one of the, the most um telling examples is um we offer a class um to sophomores at our school that um it's um essentially um for, for students who earned a, a D or an F, um, sometimes a C in their freshman math class, whatever that was. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we call it integrated chem phys, um, which I know is a common name, but um, we essentially the first semester is um, chemistry and the second semester is physics, but it's really math-based. We don't do a lot of lab. Um, with the goal being, because at the buff, you have to have a full year of chemistry or physics to graduate. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea is remediation. And so then they go on junior year and they take you to the physics or the chemistry. Um, and so, you know, the, there's a stigma attached to that class because, you know, you're in it. If you, you obviously are in it because you didn't do well in math. And, <laughs> and some people would think, a lot of people would say, it's a dead-end class. And I've heard that phrase and it's always um, bothered me a great deal. Um, because kids mature at different rates. 
mm-hmm. um, or they come in with gaps, and now we just need to catch them up. It doesn't mean that sophomore they can no longer pursue science. And so you would hear that phrase, and, and I used to teach that class. And I remember um, at the end of the year, giving them each, calling them up each individually, and giving them this button that said "math late." Um, you know, I was just so proud of them and the work they'd done, and the confidence that I saw, and the maturity. Well, anyway. Um, one of the alumni that I had come in, he actually physically came in. He was home um, during a break. He was in that class, physical science. We called it physical science at the time. He took it. Um, he was in that class and um, came back to speak about um, being in residency for oral surgery. Um, um, and so, yes. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, to you know, to me, that's really um, one of the things we need to keep in mind as teachers is that kids mature at different rates. And because they didn't achieve whatever grade as a sophomore or as a junior or as a senior, um, doesn't mean that, you know, the world of science has been closed to them. Yeah, it's uh, it's a great lesson. I, I wonder how it impacts the kids in terms of their, you know, I don't want to say stereotype in such a you know negative uh-huh. way, but, you know, they do have these boxes that we, we all have boxes that we put the world in to make the world simpler. Um, mm-hmm. I know in my school there, we have a lot of discussion about the, how you address the different levels. Um, like what, uh-huh. what do you say? Do you abbreviate? And in some ways the abbreviations have become, you know, the labels that students give themselves that, Oh, I'm in honors or I'm in, mm-hmm. you know, we have a, a middle level, which is, um, accelerated enriched, which everyone just calls AE. And then we have college prep, which people just call CP. And mm-hmm. there is a degree of sort of stereotyping that both kids stereotype themselves and also um, put others in a box about what kind of classes they take and what kind of level. I wonder, how, you know, I'm, I'd be curious to sort of, I'm putting your, the construct of this conversation in my school of how students would react mm-hmm. if it was like, oh yeah, I took, you know, this this physical science class instead of going right into chemistry, which we in fact uh-huh. do have a similar system. How would my you know, AP students have reacted to that. And um, I think it would definitely be one of those discrepant events for them. Um, right. <laughs> it doesn't match up with their worldview of how things are supposed to fit together. Right. And that, so that was a quite a um, telling moment for my seniors as they listened to Patrick's story. Yeah. Um, you know, as they sat there too. And some of them, some the, the ones who, this is what their general path would be as seniors, what they would be thinking is, well, if I'm not co-enrolled in AP biology or co-enrolled in, um, you know, AP physics, then I'm in this class because I enjoy science, but I'm really going to major in something else. And so to see someone who had taken a different path um, and didn't go through what we would call the most rigorous route in, um, in high school still ended up in a place um, that was a highly selective career um, um, it, it was just, it, you know, it was a, a profound moment for me as a teacher to, to give the students that experience. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Yeah. I, um, I, you, even, it's one of those things that I think about. Um, I, I actually got an email from a, a former, he's not actually my former student, um, <laughs> but he is a former AP bio student and former honors bio student who is, um, now at Yale. Um, but he was a cross country mm-hmm. runner and I have mm-hmm. a very, uh, I've had this very interesting, relationship with several of the cross country runners at the school that, um, I get a lot of them in class. And so then the other students who take that level, 
end up spending quite a bit of time with me. Um, and so this student, Tim, uh, actually just uh, emailed me a paper that he was a co-author on. Uh, he had done some work mm. on. And uh, it was it was great one of those moments. And my response to him was huh. like, you're okay, cool. Uh, can't wait. I'm going to have to get you in as a guest speaker back at, at AP uh-huh. again. And, um, you know, that was my main thought. And so when I was looking at your alumni Skype seminar, I, I've always thought of guest speakers as people who I can physically get back in. Um, uh-huh. I love the idea of maybe doing something a little bit smaller, a little bit, you know, um, a little, something that doesn't take up a full class and doesn't require the travel or the serendipity of having them in town um, as a possibility to get those, those stories told. Yeah, one of my favorite um, Skypes was with a um, former student who was living in Boston at the time, and she was in the Apple Store, and the marathon was going on, and we could see it <laughs> happening. Um, and she was talking to us about creating a database that, at least where she was currently working, had not previously existed for um, American vets and getting their medical records um, organized so they would have better care. Wow. So, um, <laughs> One of the things I do when I travel... Um, so when I saw you in Los Angeles, um, so one of the things I do is I try to find as many former students as possible um, and then bring them together um, to meet for dinner. And it that, too, has been a rewarding experience. I've done that in multiple cities throughout the United States. But um, I remember being in Chicago just a couple of years ago, and um, the we were in this room. There were about 30 students that would range from, at that time, um, when I came to Barbas, the, um, I was teaching freshmen, mm-hmm. and so I remember being in Chicago, and um, the oldest, my oldest student would be 32, and the youngest, and I had kids who had just gone to college who I taught as seniors the previous year, and so they were, you know, 18, 19 years old, um, <laughs> and having them all in the room together and literally the, to see the span of my career in one room um, and to have them interacting with one another and I, I remember this 19-year-old boy came up to me, and he had his backpack on, and, you know, got off the subway. <laughs> and he was a little nervous about not knowing, too. That was telling, too, about them learning how to interact with adults and not just, like, sitting on the couch in the back room talking to your friends. Mm-hmm. Um, but now you're in a social situation um, with adults. And um, him not exactly knowing what to do or saying, I said, well, you know, what are you majoring in? Remind me what you're majoring in. And he said, and I said, oh, there's an alum right over there. Let me introduce you. And I introduced him to Rodney, who was working at a nuclear power plant. Um, and turns out Rodney set up Michael um, to get an internship. And so to see those connections being made, um, that was that's another um, profound experience as a teacher. Wow. Um, to go beyond the classroom, yeah, and bring kids together. Um, and a lot of times, you know, like I did this in Boston. I've done it in San Francisco and L.A. and New York. Um a lot of times they don't even know anyone else there is there from their school um, yeah. in the town. And then they have a little piece of home for the night, but then they start connecting and talking and um, about their connections back in Indianapolis, but also there in the town that they're living. So that's that's a, been a way that I feel like I've also um, really tried to help students. That's amazing. How, how big is uh, a school do you teach at? I mean, how big is, um, yeah. 800. Kids. 800. Okay. Uh-huh. Yeah, Nine it's, through twelve. It's inter- it's an interesting. Like I, I, I was thinking a little bit about that and the size and scope because I teach in a school of about two thousand, um, mm-hmm. and sort of the I, I'm thinking about sort of that sense of community um, 
mm-hmm. that exists um, in different school sizes. Um, I absolutely uh-huh. connect with students, but I do it much more on a sort of one-on-one basis because um, I, sure. I, I had dinner with a, a former student who was out in L.A. Uh, when I was out mm-hmm. there and, and that sort of thing. Um, it's, a very, it's a very neat thing. We actually talk a lot about doing that sort of program um, you know, connecting alumni and connecting with, you know, both cor- current and former students. And, uh, you know, I'm on a, on a committee that does some school to work, uh, connections, uh, very much like your, your Skype program and, and these alumni connections. Um, it feels like a giant beast to do it with, <laughs> with an alumni <laughs> that we have. Um, and I feel uh-huh. like we're, I, we've been a little behind the curve. It's kind of like, a, oh, we should have been collecting information over this time and uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> having a more reliable you know, database of contacts and that sort of thing. Um, and we're starting to put those types together. It's very... Uh, it's inspiring to hear that because I feel like it's work that I am part of and am inspired to do, uh, but it's not something that we necessarily pull off um, that elegantly. <laughs> so, yeah, it, well, so it started with me um, literally taking every student I'd ever had and putting their name into Facebook <laughs> and creating lists. This is over the course of several late nights, um, creating a list of what city that they are living in. And then, um, also, and then when you know, I'm sure students reach out to you with LinkedIn and so mm-hmm. on. And so when that would happen, I'd say, hey, you know, it's great to connect with you. Where are you living? And then create these lists. Um, and then we do have an alumni office. And what I found is the population that I've taught, meaning age now like what 33, 34, um, they're young professionals. They're still in college, so it's a pretty, uh, it's a, it's um, a population that's still pretty mobile. You know, they've maybe gone to mm-hmm. college one place, maybe grad school another place, and they got, you know, they went to a city where this was their first job or, you know, maybe um, got married or what have you. Um, and so their records are often pretty, they're incomplete. And so um, it's been fun because in connecting with these students, it has enriched our school records in terms of um, knowing them and reaching out to them. Um, so, yeah, it is, It's. I'm not going to say it was, easy process, but it's, it was certainly fruitful and something I continue. And, you know, I haven't done this, but I'm certain I could on Facebook say, Hey, I'm going to St. Louis this fall for an ABT. Who's going to be there. Yeah. So that's amazing. So it's, it's an amazing work. Um, it also speaks a little bit to your sort of organization and ability to <laughs> pull that together, um, uh, and dedication to it. Um, and this sort of transitions a little bit, um, you know, I'm not shocked that you would do this work. Um, because again, I was looking back at things that you, you had done in the past and I noticed that you had been uh, past president of both your state science teacher association and your state biology teacher association. Um, and mm-hmm. you know, as somebody who is a peripheral member of both of those in my state, um, having been member, uh, you know, a member of both Massachusetts Association of Science Teachers and Massachusetts Massachusetts Association of Biology Teachers, um, I'm kind of curious. How did you get involved with the state leadership, and you know, what is it like to be a past president of these organizations? Um, so I, Hasty as the um, Hoosier <laughs> Association of Science Teachers Incorporated. Um, as you mentioned in the beginning, um, but I'll just refer to it as Hasty now. Um, that is state chapter for NSTA, and then um, Indiana Association of Biology Teachers um, (IABT) is the um, Indiana state chapter for NABT, um, of which I'm currently serving on the board. I should mention that yeah. um, of NABT. Um, and 
we so I Hasty um, has been one of the, the larger state conferences, and so I would you know always attend that. And you know Deb, I told you about mentor Deb. <laughs> yeah. My first year after my first full year of teaching, said, okay, I want you to co-present with me. And I'm thinking, like, what do I have to say? And she said, Sherry, come on, you know, think about the different things you can do and just co-present with me. And um, because she made me feel so confident, I look back, I don't know if you have these moments, I look back, (laughs) oh, my God, I'm so embarrassed. (laughs) Why did I think that was a great idea to share? And so, um, like, I remember one of the things, essentially um, our talk was about, I don't know, like survival tips in the classroom or something. And um, I think it's called Plot, Plot, Fizz, Fizz, now that I think about it. Um, <laughs> and, um, and, you know, she was this veteran teacher and well-known in our state. Um, and she had been teaching, I don't know, 15, 17 years at that point. You know, and so here I am. And she's like, come on, let's go present. And so, you know, she didn't give me any excuses. Um, she, I'm going to say, made me. Um, but I, you know, I was glad to do that. But I remember um, thinking this is so great. And I was so confident about it that um, I, one of my tips was, okay, when I go to a conference, um, because at that time a lot of um, biology was macro, you know, trees and yeah. animals. Um, and so I would train my students. So I would say, I'd walk into class and go, okay, anyone while I'm at a conference want to run a dissection while I'm gone? And it didn't matter to me the grade the student had because I thought, you know, if they're interested, then there's learning here. And so I would then train this group of kids after school so confidently, you know, with scalpels and so on. <laughs> and, and then um, when I'm gone at a conference, they were the ones running the dissections in the classroom, like the teacher. And um, I remember sharing this tip and people horrified at me thinking, how could you ever leave teenagers in charge of dissection? <laughs> and so, um, and I get that now, you know, I'm teaching 25 years. I, I think that there's some youth, there's some value in training kids, but I, I get where, you know, then you've got this adult, the sub who comes in, who's not used to even being in a science classroom, let alone, let alone teenager scalpels. Um, so... Um, but I look back and, you know, those are just seminal moments, you know, when you've got people who believe in you and um, get you involved right away. And so, you know, then I continued to present with Deb and then on my own. And because she knew people, she would introduce me. And, you know, it's about, as you know, about networking, mm-hmm. um, not in terms of I want to achieve a particular goal of leadership, but I really want to learn from people and I want to give back um, and so IBT, I would you know, also attend. That was a much, much smaller group, um, and they didn't have their own conference, but they would actually have a meeting during Hasty. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'd go to that meeting and um, just became involved when the opportunity was there. And um, and one of the things with Hasty, so John Moore, he's the former NABT, he's the former president of um, NABT, mm-hmm. and also now Hasty. Um, he, well, when I was president of Hasty, he was vice president. So that was phenomenal to learn from him. And he'd already been the president of NABT. <laughs> so, but he and I had um, started the Hasty Facebook page, I'm going to say five, seven years ago. Um, and our job really, we just wanted to populate it every day with some good resource. And then, you know, I'm going to say after a year or so, people um, started populating it themselves. It's kind of like what happened with NABT. John and I and a few others. Um, initially would populate that and now, you know, it's, it's self-sustaining. Um, so just, you know, figuring out ways that you can become involved. Um, 
I used to tweet a great deal at NABT conferences, but again, now that's taken off. Um, and other people did the same thing. So, you know, finding ways that um, are meaningful um, and sometimes novel um, ways to um, reach people. Yeah. So now that you are a past president, do you have a, I mean, is your role just to be like, uh, you know, is it a veteran member of the organization or do you have like sort of continuing roles that you, you continue in these organizations? So as past president of Hasty, um, when you're immediate past president, your job then is to um, run the conference the next year and to pick yeah, yeah, pick the keynote speakers. Now, at that time, we had an outside group who handled registration and so on. Um, but um, so that was my job. And then really after immediate past president, I would say you're just more of a, um, a person who is supporting, um, helping when asked, volunteering when not asked, yeah, okay. <laughs> um, and really just being an active supporter. But there's no formal role. So one of the big things that that pops out at me is the sort of like running theme as you're talking about, you know, getting involved with these organizations is this sort of running theme of sort of mentorship um, that comes Mm -hmm. through that both the mentorship that got you into sort of presenting and then also your turn now that you're in these these roles, either whether it's through your alumni connections or in this group of sort of helping newer teachers come through. I guess my question for you is how do you in these organizations, these state organizations help connect new teachers? What, like what is, what is hasty or what is the Indiana association of biology teachers method of recruiting new young teachers into the fold? Well, I wish I could tell you there's, I mean, it's a discussion all the time within professional organizations yeah. uh, about how do you recruit new members, particularly when we're living in a, um, an era where people can connect online um, so, you know, trying to, it really tends to boil down to that, that new teacher that's in, that you've met, that's either at your school or at another school, um, really trying to convince them of the value. And of course, um, sometimes they can be convinced easily, but then the funding can become difficult yeah. um, at their school, um, to convince them of the value of meeting in person, um, and how, yes, um, you know, there is certainly merit in the virtual world, um, but um, to meet in person, to share ideas, and, you know, as many teachers um, feel, when you leave a conference, it's not just about the ideas that you've um, you, you've learned, um, but people you've met, and then also realizing, you know what, I'm not alone in this, and mm. there are so many good um, teachers. We are surrounded by so many good, dedicated teachers, and that doesn't necessarily translate well to the internet, and certainly the media doesn't paint that picture. Um, so it can be easy to become demoralized in your profession, and I can imagine, particularly if you're maybe the only science teacher, one of the few at your school, um, if you if you don't get out and realize um, there are a lot of people fighting the same fight um, and who love what they do, I, I would imagine um, burning out um, could happen quite quickly. Yeah, that sense of community, um, you know, my last episode um, was I recorded um, when I was down in Florida um, at Mm -hmm. the NABT um, HHMI BSCS (laughs) Regional Teacher Association. There were were way too many acronyms in that one, but, uh, (laughs) but, you know. I know what you're talking about. (laughs) Yeah, but it was a, I mean, it was a a fantastic um, 
program. But one, you know, the bottom line, and and uh, Val was talking about this uh, quite about Valerie May was talking about this quite a bit that. Um, like one of their goals uh, of the of the week was to build community that like all of the mm. participants in there and all of the presenters there were there to build community and i i don't know that i've been to a workshop where that was an ex- you know an explicit expressed mission statement um mm-hmm. as part of the goal was to build um community but it certainly is one of those things. Um, last night I was, you know, in a conversation with one of the members who teaches down in Florida. Uh, we were having a conversation on Twitter um, about something. So it's it's definitely mm-hmm. one of those cases where um, you you build that community in those those organizations. It is hard to explain to somebody who doesn't engage in that how to, how important that is and how fulfilling it is. Um, <laughs> I think that's a struggle. Like, how do you communicate to somebody who doesn't do that, that you get, you can get all of this extra, um, out of going to these conferences and being part of this larger group and being part of this community? Yeah, I, I agree. It's, it's difficult to articulate and we do the best we can. And so oftentimes I say, um, it's something you need to feel to understand, you know, you had to have experienced it and felt that and go, oh, okay, now I know why this is so, so vital. Yeah. It also, and I, I think back to it, like the model for, you know, most of us as students was to walk in and see a teacher in the room and the teacher did their thing and each of the individual rooms were isolated from one another. Correct. Like you didn't, you, you didn't view teaching from the, you know, the, the student perspective as this highly connected, networked thing. You know, it's... I agree. And yeah. so I think it's, it is definitely a paradigm shift now that we're we are now teaching in a very, we're teaching in a very different time, but the different time Uh is that we're all, we are, we have that ability to be connected um, and being connected can make you a much, much stronger teacher, but it's, Mm -hmm. it is definitely thinking about the career differently than maybe the, the, the platonic view of what you thought teaching was uh, before you got started. I, yes, agreed. Um, Well stated. (laughs) All right. So we've now talked about, uh, you know, how you got in the classroom and, and some of the things you've worked on. Um, what are you looking forward to? We've talked much more about you outside of the classroom, but what are you looking forward to in your classroom in the, in the next couple of years? Well, one of the things in teaching life science, um, as you know, is it's constantly changing. Um, and so as you were talking about, you know, um, teachers being connected now and it didn't seem that way when we were students, um, you know, that's one of the, to me, it's one of the exciting challenges, but it is a challenge um, because we are teaching um, in a way that we did not experience as a student, meaning all these tools mm. um, and we have access to um, online, um, et cetera. Um, so for me, in teaching biotech, um, the content is constantly changing. And then, of course, the tools that I can use. And so, you know, it, I feel like... Um, it keeps me um, energized. I mean, it can be tiring, of course, mm-hmm. but it keeps me energized. Um, you know, I think there are other subjects where uh, maybe the basic foundational content doesn't really change. It might be at a higher level, um, you know, where, where, where research is being done, but it doesn't usually filter down into the into the foundational courses. But I think that's where life science is much different um, yeah. in, in that, um, that content. Boy, we have to really keep up with that. Uh, which can be invigorating, but 
you know, at any, at any moment, a student could say, I read this in yesterday's paper. Can you tell me about it? And you're like, well, I didn't see yesterday's <laughs> paper. <laughs> I'm lucky I saw it a week ago, but no. Um, yeah, so to me, I, that's what I look forward to. Yeah, you, you talk about, you were talking about your alumni connection. I do a job shadowing program mm-hmm. where I send kids out. And I, I, I've told the story a few different times, but a couple of years ago, you know, I thought like, I'm on it. I'm like teaching all this great <laughs> stuff. And all the kids came back and they're like, what's CRISPR? I was like, God damn it. <laughs> I got I to gotta learn what CRISPR is now yeah. because my kids are going to these labs and they're all hearing about it. And I don't really know what it is. So um, yeah, I, remember, I feel like, and it's just going to be, you know, next year it's going to be something else and I don't even know what it is, uh-huh. but they're going to come back and they're going to be like, so what's this thing? And I'll be like, I don't, I don't right. know. Um, but yeah, the, the learning curve is steep because um, as I often like to tell them, like almost everything I learned in college is pretty much pointless at this point. Like oh. the, the information is, you know, you know, I, I graduated in the 90s uh, <laughs> undergraduate with my degree and it was uh-huh. a good degree and a good program. But, you know, it's very I teach very, very I, little of that. <laughs> agreed. Yeah. I mean, when I think about all the things I'm teaching now. Um, that I did not experience in college. Um, it's phenomenal. And that's where, again, you know, I, I'm teaching at a school where they, part of the culture is professional development. Yeah. And um, so it's highly supported. And I, I can't imagine teaching, in my case, biotech and not having gone out to conferences um, or met other teachers. Yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, it is. And I, I agree. It's sort of this double-edged sword. I think that there's some people who feel like a lot of this, the between the, the content you have to keep up with and the, uh-huh. the teaching techniques that you should keep up with and, you know, all of the other uh-huh. things, I, I hear a lot of sort of exasperation and like, oh, it's, it's over overwhelming. Um, but I guess that sort of speaks back to your sense of community that you're mentioning earlier. When you mm-hmm. feel like I have to figure out all of this stuff and learn all of this stuff and oh, it's so much work for me to do as opposed to mm-hmm. I'm in a community and we're all working on this stuff together and mm-hmm. I can reach out and get help from people who are thinking about this and they're thinking about it in a similar way, but maybe a little differently. And I have somebody I can have a conversation with or somebody I can ask questions to because they're they're They've decided to forge out in this, this Avenue and, I wasn't quite ready there, but now I have this person I can ask questions to. Um, mm-hmm. You can feel much more supported in it um, as you're in this, you know, possibly very invigorating time to to teach um, if you feel supported in that process. Yes, I think again, and that's a theme I know that's come up as we've been talking is um, support, having the support. Um, yeah. When you begin teaching, as you continue teaching, et cetera. Um, one of the other complications um, or challenges too is not but beyond the content is keeping up with technology and what is a what is useful in my classroom. Meaning, I don't want to just artificially um, implement something just for the sake of saying, okay, I'm using technology. But yeah. you know, to have the time um, to go through all that and find uh, meaningful um, ways to use technology is also um, an issue. Um, for example. I um, was using a, um, a DNA kit where the students were, were building this model of DNA and mm-hmm. going through the process of replication. And I knew I couldn't view each group um, completing the activity at the same time. So Vine at the time um, was the video associated with Twitter, mm-hmm. and it was a six-second video. Okay. And so I thought, oh, okay, I can use Vine. The students, you know, this, and, I, and I try not to use the, the same thing over and over where they become bored. Um, but 
find that, okay, a useful way for this, them to use this vine is they have to then decide, okay, in this six-second video, because I didn't want one that was like five minutes, <laughs> um, this six-second video, plus I, as I told them, I wanted them to unabashedly share their love of DNA replication to the world. But nonetheless, um, they had to decide in the six-second six video um, what are the important parts to capture and so then, it, you know, in that six seconds, I can see DNA replication occur. So it allowed me as the teacher to see in six seconds what they thought represented DNA replication, um, to see each group's work without actually standing over them. Um, so, it, you know, it worked out well for about two years. And then the third year, I remember the students saying, Miss Anna, no one uses fine anymore. <laughs> Dang it. Yeah. I gave up this whole lesson. Um, you know, all these parameters and writing it up. And, you know, so yeah. then that turned into, all right, find your favorite program. And I only want a six second video. And I said, well, what about eight seconds? You know, all that. Um, so I, 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 I feel like I have good humor about it, but there is the reality of it's exhausting to try to keep up with it all. Yeah. yeah. And create meaningful learning experiences. This is a, one of those reoccurring themes that I've talked to people that we were sort of getting to this post, like app, post device, like that we're teaching the kids how to use certain apps or certain programs to do things, but rather mm -hmm. we're providing them, we're asking them questions and then they're picking from a suite of tools that exist out there in the world. Mm -hmm. And most of the kids can do most of these things on their own. Um, and yeah, we'll have a little yeah. bit of startup, but we don't, we're more or less introducing the fact that they can use these tools that they don't use academically in an academic setting rather than us teaching them how to use these digital tools. Yeah. I think that's a much wiser approach, um, <laughs> and better as they navigate the world and, and technology constantly changes. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm sort of in that same process. I've been sort of rethinking some of the, my approaches to homework, um, mm -hmm. and I, I'm, I, I'm butting up against that same, like this exact same thing that you're talking about, about like, I'm trying to figure out the way the framing certain questions or certain creations that I'm asking students to do. Um, and I'm providing them examples of tools they can use, but not saying uh -huh. I'm catching myself. I'm like, for me, uh -huh. I, f I felt like I'm saying use this to do this. And it's like, no, I've got to reframe it. I've got to say, all right. Um, make a, you know, make a video that does this, you may want to use tools like this or this or this. So for a student who doesn't know how to do it, they have a little bit of structure and I could sit down with them and I could explain it to them. But for students who know, and they're like, oh, well, that's like so passe, like <laughs> we, we don't do that anymore. Uh, and they've got, some, they've got something better to do it. They can pick a better tool. Right. So um, I like that. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's 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 been. T I mean, I I, I totally the, the your words resonate strongly with me because I very much <laughs> had that. Um, I've had that very dilemma as I've been looking down at this. All right, what is my uh, what is my option? My my thing I'm sort of working through right now is I'm trying to provide three homework choices for every learning theme that I'm looking at. And so I'm mm -hmm. giving them our textbook outlines, which is sort of our traditional homework. Um, I'm giving them. Uh, videos to watch and take notes on and then I'm giving them a creation choice so that they would create a product that's based off the theme and the idea is that they're going to have to pick from the different choices at least one of each option one textbook one video one creation every unit ah, and uh -huh. that and that they could do more of any one of them that they want but I'm going to make them use 
two different sort of content delivery things, either a textbook or a video, um, to take notes on. And then they're going to have to create at least one thing every single unit. And that's sort of uh-huh. the model I'm kicking off. Uh, this may fall completely flat on its face <laughs> mid-September. And I get through September, beginning of mid of September and go, what was I thinking? But I'm planning out at least the first four units of the year starting out this way. Um, but that create option is is interesting because you want the scope of it to be something that doesn't get too caught up in the like coolness of a tool. You know, you know, like you don't want them to get right. into a tool that they're just playing with a tool and they're they're losing Correct. the content idea or the conceptual framework. At the same time, you also want it to be interesting enough that's engaging. Um, and there's like this whole parameter thing. So uh, coming up with that third option has been a real. It's been an interesting challenge that I am working my way through, and I, I, I'm just like you said, you don't want to use the same note all the time. So mm-hmm. um, I'm, I'm trying to mix it up um, so that I'm providing some different opportunities and different tools. And I also have the students do some projects later in the year where they, they do a creation part of it, and I'm trying to give them some experience and exposure so that when they get to that point later in the year, they've, they've tried a lot of different things, and so they have a, a large toolbox to draw from when they get to that point. So. Yeah, that um, it, it, what I'm hearing, uh, what I heard you say was about um, it's a challenge, but you're working your way through it. And, you know, it makes me think about the risk, how important it is to take risk in teaching and then to model that to your students, mm-hmm. um, which is sounds like, you know, you're setting up with this um, this creative project at the end of each unit. Um, yeah. Well, I know. It's funny. I told my so colleague just this the other day that it was like when I got over myself and I didn't take myself seriously and I kept on saying to my uh-huh. students, yeah, I don't know where this is going. Uh, this is going to be cool. Let's see what this happened. When I finally got over the fact that I had to be the person who knew everything in the room, uh-huh. Um, uh-huh. like I became a much, much better teacher. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I've said teaching is a humbling experience and that's how I come. I, I try to come from it because otherwise it can be embarrassing and humiliating <laughs> if you, you know, if you let your ego become too much involved in having to know everything. But if you think, mm, you know what, I don't know, and let's try this and figure it out. Um, I remember when I was, um, my son and I were um, on this adventure. I planned a surprise trip every summer, and we had um, gone um, um, on a hot air balloon ride. We had, um, we'd done some other things, and we were ziplining um, just outside Yellowstone. And he turned to me and he said, Mom, he was like nine, he said, Mom, why does everything we do have a small chance of death? Because we've been signing <laughs> these waivers and hearing these safety talks. And he zipped, as he zipped away, I said, every great adventure involves a small chance of death. And I think that also applies with teaching, right? You have to take risk uh, in order to experience those, those great moments um, as a teacher and um, as, as a student. Yeah. Well, I, I tell the kids, I, you know, the, my, my new tagline the last couple of years has been, you know, we're all learning in here. Um, you know, when they, when they ask me questions and I'm like, yeah, we're all learning in here. Like you're learning, I'm learning, we're all learning. Like none of us have this down. Um, so mm-hmm. yeah, I think the, the risk of death is just the, the, the death by embarrassment in the classroom. That's the, right. <laughs> <laughs> that's the risk of death. All right, so you just jumped into a little bit. So uh, you are clearly a daredevil who likes to attempt uh, fate. But my, my broader question was like, when you are not teaching, what do you like to do? Uh, aside from zip lining and uh, tempting death, uh, what kind of things do you like to do? Well, <laughs> within reason, uh, part of that trip too was um, fossil hunting in the Badlands. And I had found this woman, her name is Marge. I call her Fossil Hunter Marge. Um, and she had... Um, 
she owned 16,000 acres. She was 70 years old, and um, she um, w- was really an amateur, um, but had found fossils that were displayed in, in museums throughout um, the United States. And um, so it was um, my son, husband, and myself, and then this other family of four who we did not know, showed up at Marge's ranch, <laughs> and she um, was carrying a pistol. And of course, my son looked at me. This is this happened with the blinding uh, the day later. And he's like, Mom, why does she have a gun? I'm like, well, every great adventure involves a small chance of death. She had it to shoot the, um, the um, mountain lions and the rattlesnakes, she yeah. said. So she was very, she was highly weathered looking like, you know, she had, she had worked <laughs> the land. And um, so she got on her four-wheeler and we followed behind in a car that her granddaughter drove. And she's like, you know, I think I'm just going to go to this, this place um, out that I hadn't been in a couple of years. And so we followed her and she just immediately stops. There was no road, um, just stops. And, you know, her granddaughter's like, I guess this is where we're going. So we jumped out and said, okay, now the only rule is look where you're going so you don't step on a rattlesnake. I'm like, okay, so <laughs> here we are. <laughs> and, of course, i got a nine-year-old son who's, like, swinging his arms and, you know, jumping around. And so we just keep walking and walking and finally get to this area. And, you know, there, of course, no cell phone reception, um, nothing. We, and we had to carry our own food, which really was just some beef jerky and some water because we didn't want to carry a lot. And we weren't sure how long we were going to be out there. We knew at least a few hours. And she turned to us. Again, we're in the middle of nowhere, this gorgeous land. And she says, and she's got a cigarette hanging out of her mouth. <laughs> and she says, I don't have a computer. I don't have a cell phone. I don't have a television. I just love this shit. And um, my son, of course, looked at me like, Mom. And it just to be given the freedom. And we literally then explored for the next few hours, and she helped us identify if things were fossils or not. But to be given permission to explore freely. And when I was experiencing that, I thought, you know, we just, we just don't do that as human beings. You know, mm. we're so connected. In so many ways, we don't take the time and space to just explore. And so that um, that was a phenomenal um, experience um, in many ways. But um, you asked about being a daredevil. Um, we are doing a three-day Grand Canyon adventure <laughs> this summer that involves taking a helicopter down into the Grand Canyon and a raft and you know, down the Colorado for 90 miles and so on. So oh. I, I do um, try to – it's more, I would say, exposing my son to um, our environment and to not be scared and um, to relish opportunities. Cool. It's uh, a lot more adventurous than I, I've been to the Grand Canyon. I didn't do the, the helicopter in and the, the Colorado <laughs> uh, viewpoint, but very, very, uh, very exciting. I, I think, yeah, the, the connection is an interesting point. Like you get, you're going to connect with something. Um, connecting uh-huh. with nature is a, is definitely an, you know, as you were saying that I was thinking about, you know, going and walking trails with my sons or trail running myself and y- you mm-hmm. can connect either digitally and with the digital world, or you could connect with the outside world. And, uh, mm-hmm. I think summer's a great time for everyone to, to take some time to do that. Um, definitely have to, I'll rethink what I'm doing later this month when I get, when I'm done with all my professional development and how I can take my kids out on maybe not, you know, that kind of degree of adventure, but, um, <laughs> I did see a bear in the trails a couple of weeks ago. So, oh. here, so they're black bears. They're, they're, they don't want anything to do with you, but 
Well, two years ago, we stayed in a tree house in the Santa Cruz Mountains. It was pretty isolated, but, um, you know, so things like that you can do that aren't so um, risky. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what a chance of bears. <laughs> <laughs> well, true. <laughs> Think, just, you know, bring Fossil Hunter Marge along with yeah. her gun. <laughs> She'll protect you. Um, all right. So before we get to the picks of the episode, do you have any questions for me? Um, so what, what keeps you going in the classroom, you know, 22 years in? Yeah, I, I, it's a lot of the themes that you brought up, um, that, that curiosity, that desire to, to, to learn. Um, you know, I, as I said, I feel like it's such a fascinating time, both in life science and just in teaching. Um, and I, I think the, probably the biggest drive I have at this point is, you know, when I took high school biology, it, my vision of it was you walk in the classroom teacher shut out the light they turn over the on the overhead projector and she would write down her notes and we would write down those notes in our notebook and then maybe every six days or something there'd be stuff out on lab tables that we would look at or we'd dissect an earthworm or something like that and it just it wasn't a particularly engaging class um i did not fall in love with biology in high school biology and i've never wanted to teach that class um <laughs> that i took um but truth be told i'd say 10 years into teaching i felt like not that I was teaching exactly the same class, but there was way too much of what I saw in my own classroom that were mm-hmm. callbacks to that classroom. Um, you know, the, the reliance on presentation of material, um, not really inquiry enough investigations. Um, it, it, was a, it was a classroom where if one wanted to be passive and wanted to selectively check in and out, you could do it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so mm-hmm. that was, say, maybe 10 years into my career, I felt that way. Um, and now, with all the information that we have and all of the exciting things that are out there and all of the tools at our disposal and the universe of information that's out there, um, my goal to not teach the way I was taught and to think about teaching where students are sense-making and are engaged and, you know, really foster a love for learning. Ideally, it would be love of learning of biology, but... Honestly, if at the end of my class, they just are excited about learning stuff and have tools that help them become better learners and biology is not their passion, I'd be totally okay with that. Um, but I, I would love to get that that engagement and, you know, as I, I mentioned, toolbox earlier, building the toolbox of students as learners. Um, I feel like I do an okay job at that now, but I could do a much better job and my goal to be better at that is sort of the thing that drives me. Well, thank you. I hope that answers the question. Um, But yeah, (laughs) I spent the last week deep, deep in the the weeds talking about this stuff um, at at that regional teachers um, academy that we were down in Florida. And it was, it was, you know, I I described it as challenging mental work Uh where you have to, Uh you're presented something and you have to think, all right, how does this match up with what I already know? What does this match up with what I do? How do, how do I take pieces of this and do what I do better Um, because it's not to say that I don't it's not like I I think I do a bad job teaching but it's to do a better job teaching Um, that's Mm -hmm. that's a that's a really curious thing and every experience I have whether it's you know that experience down there or the Pogel workshop that I'll be doing in a couple of weeks um, is how can you engage and and then learn um, and get a little bit better at what you do or hopefully a lot better at what you do um, with you know what 15 years left in my career or so um, there's, uh, there's, I feel like it sounds like a lot of time, but 
blink of an eye, I'm 22 years in. So I know that um, I, the time is precious and uh-huh. there's only so many more years to get better at what I'm working on. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Teaching definitely presents that opportunity um, to continually get better. Yeah. Yeah. I, it's something you would have, if you'd asked 22 year old me, I would have never, <laughs> never thought of those, thought of it in those terms, but um, yeah, definitely. I, yes, I think most of us were living to the next day to figure out um, what we were going to do and, and survive. All right. So um, as we've got to the end of the episode, um, it's time for picks of the episode. Sherry, what picks do you have for this episode? Uh, so resources. Yes. Um, so there's a, a BioRad kit that I use, the fish profiling, mm-hmm. um, which allows you to um, amplify the um, part of cytochrome C, mm-hmm. um, which is unique to um, each species of fish. And so the way I've used that kit in my classroom is uh, and so you amplify that region and then you um, run a gel. Um, the way that I've used that is um, in the context of sushi. And so I go around to local restaurants. Um, and order nigiri, so I eat one piece and then take one back to the to the lab for students to test. And I tell them I'm taking one for the science team um, because you know we're gonna identify um, what I really ate. And um, so we amplify, we extract the DNA, amplify that region, run a gel to see if we're successful. And then um, if they were successful amplifying that, um, getting product, then we send that off to be sequenced. And then um, we receive that sequence and then. Um, identify the, the fish. And so it was interesting is recently when I did this, I've done it a few times, but um, recently um, I went to four restaurants. Three of them had served red snapper um, and I ordered that. And in all three cases, it was tilapia, <laughs> um, which of course it, you know, is a safe fish to eat, but it's a much cheaper fish. And part of that too, they have to research, you know, the, the, the price per pound and all that. Yeah. And so um, that became intriguing because so our, one of the people who work in our communications um, area came down and said, you know, Sherry, the local TV station, Indianapolis TV station, wants to run the story, but only if you name the restaurants. So I, you know, I said no, but I said, well, do you mind if I ask my students? And he's like, you yeah, know, sure, go ahead. And so I did, and, you know, they've grown up, you know, these are, you know, 17, 18-year-olds who, um, you know, with social media, um, they want, they just put things out there oftentimes um, and they want likes and they want retweets and, mm-hmm. they, you know, they want favorites and so on. And so I went in and proposed this and they're like, yeah, you know, and reality TV, all of that. Right. Mm-hmm. And I said, and they're like, yeah, we need to, we need to bust them, you know, tell, <laughs> tell people what they did. And I said, okay, well, in good Jesuit tradition, I'm going to give you 24 hours to reflect upon this and we're going to come back and talk about it tomorrow. And so, you know, eventually most of them got to the, you know what, we really don't have enough information here. Was it the supplier? Um, did they all have the same supplier? Um, did we, did, did, the, did the restaurant owners know, et cetera, you know, people's livelihoods. And so um, it became a really compelling way to, to discuss, um, you know, PCR and yeah. uh, make it relevant. Um, and so I use that kit, um, but, you know, it's also costly. Um, so as an alternative, um, I also love the new HHMI Bioinactive um, CSI Wildlife, where, you know, it's a free resource and um, it's an interactive, it just was released within the last year, I want to say, um, where students go through DNA profiling um, and they um, use it to identify elephants that have been poached. And, you know, they're real scenarios mm. um, of poaching and trying to figure out where conservation efforts should be um, 
um, emphasized and so on. So that's one of my students said it was her favorite activity of the year, which, you know, I love that, you know, I'm sitting, but I think, okay, we're doing all these wet labs and then, you know, something I can pull up free is her favorite. And that's great. You know, you try to try to make it so that, um, um, you have a variety of activities, you know, that resonate. Yeah. With I, each student. I think this one's really interesting, particularly, I mean, I do, we do, you know, gels and PCR and that sort of thing. I think it's a, to create extra resource, and it also ties back to ecology, um, which I find, you know, your mm. fish lab is is definitely one of those things. But in an introductory biology class um, that I teach, um, I find that I even if I see the connect connection to ecology, sometimes uh-huh. doing all of the labs that take three or four days, the kids sometimes lose that a little bit. Um, so the, the uh-huh. CSI wildlife is a it's a little bit more concise. Um, it's a little uh-huh, bit more bite-sized uh-huh. piece. And um, I think it, for mm-hmm. me, I look at it as a, a good um, introductory tool to a lot of those labs mm-hmm. to provide a little bit more context as to some of the different ways the, that you can use the biotech. Um, so you're right. Absolutely. If you have the resources, it's great to do the gels. But even if you, uh-huh. even if you have the resources, it's good to do some of the biointeractives to give that different perspective on um, Absolutely, yeah. How those go, and I love the I love the ecological connection, which is something I try to do, but I don't always feel like I do a great job tying back to that ecological theme that I I purport is the running theme through my intro bio class. So, all right. Well, my pick of the week is something I picked up at my regional teacher association. Uh, it is called uh, the BSCS explanation tool. Um, I don't know if you ever do any. Um, uh, claim evidence reasoning work with your students um, or anything along those lines. Uh, but I, this is the model that I have moved to um, in the last uh, last year with my intro bio classes as a way of writing things up. And the explanation tool, it describes it as an AP bioscientific explanation tool, but I don't think it's just AP biology. It describes a way of, of taking um, a scientific question identifying pieces of evidence, connecting them to key scientific ideas or principles or concepts, and then making a claim based off of the evidence you've collected and then tying the whole thing together in explanation. And it gives a lot of the definitions that are related to like, well, what what do we mean when we say a claim? What does it mean when we say evidence? What do we mean when we say a scientific principle? So I think it's a, for me, it's another one of those um, extra resources that I think will strengthen, uh, particularly the scaffolding when I explain to students, you know, claim evidence reasoning. Uh, it's something I'm intending to use early on in the year uh, to root each of those concepts to my students um, and give mm-hmm. them an idea of, of how, how to make a scientific argument or a scientific explanation of something. So... I think I can see that you have that document, and I assume it's available for your listeners as well, yes. the, the link. Um, I, so thank you. I can see that. Um, it's yeah. really well yeah. laid out. Yeah, I, I, I thought it was um, – it, It's I've seen a lot, and when we were out at LA, I went to a lot of things that were about claim evidence and reasoning. Um, and to me, this document, and maybe it's where I am in my journey, so it maybe doesn't have as much resonance uh, for other people who have looked at it. Uh, other documents about making ex- scientific explanations. But for me, it laid out the, the the making of a scientific explanation and what is the difference between just explaining something and having a scientific explanation and having that root to an underlying scientific concept or principle, uh, which I think is so important for students 
uh, to understand a scientific explanation or a scientific argument versus just an explanation. Um, this mm -hmm. puts it together in a way that I think is going to be very user-friendly for my students. Um, so I'm excited to try it out and get feedback from them and, and, um, and see if this helps make that picture. Um, I feel like I get my students there at the end of the year, but it's a lot of fits and starts. So I'm hoping this will start us off on a strong, a strong note on that journey next year. Well, I hope you give us a follow-up because I would love to hear how it goes. Yeah, I definitely will have to put As, that in sometime in the fall once I get feedback from them. All right, well, thank you for sharing your risk with us. <laughs> uh, all right. So uh, thank you, Sherry, for joining me on this episode. As I said, uh, a little more than an hour, um, <laughs> as, as is normally the case. Um and uh, at this point, I would give my credits. Uh, music on this and every episode is by my former student, Jake Jenkins, uh, and his band Ex-Magicians. Ex uh, he is the person I had dinner with out in L.A. Um, when, when I was meeting with my alumni. Uh, and you can uh, subscribe to this episode on... Uh, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or really any place that podcasts are found. You can get show notes on lifeoftheschool.org. Uh, you can also tweet at me, at Mr. Matthew Tweets, or at Life of the School. Um, I monitor both those accounts. Uh, Sherry does have a Twitter account, but I'll be honest, it looks pretty dead. Um, <laughs> <laughs> True. <laughs> she has, hasn't really been very active, So, um, but you feel free to, to look her up on me. I'll, maybe I'll put your uh, Twitter um handle in my show notes as well so you can uh, get a little okay. get a little twitter bump see if that that draws you all back right. in all right so thank okay. you again for joining me and i will talk to everybody soon all right. thank you Aaron. <laughs>